0: in coaching you tend to find that the people who use it most are the people who are most isolated so that leadership coaching senior executive coaching founder coaching its because those are the most isolating roles you know if you're a founder you can't go to the water cooler and go oh god i'm so stressed with your team because they need you to be the leader you can't go to your investors and go ah! so it's a very very isolating role like being a ceo is
1: And examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book plan B, how to scale your technology business faster, and achieve plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Rachel Turner. Rachel is the author of The Founder's Survival Guide. talk about that book and her own journey. In the book, she talks about three major archetypes that founders must learn to show up as, The brave warrior, which is the most common of founders showing up in entrepreneurial style, I guess. Then they need to be managers showing up as the considered architect and finally as leaders and being that sort of strategic wise monarch. These are the things that Rachel wishes she had known. She'd founded five businesses before her 25th birthday and really, I guess, hit a glass ceiling. And so after retraining in psychology and launching her first coaching practice in 1999, She's been on a mission to help founders scale themselves, break through their own glass ceilings and grow their businesses from startup to scale up to grown up, I guess. So fascinating conversation with Rachel talking about her journey, the work she does now and her great book, The Founder Survival Guide. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hi,
0: I'm Rachel Turner. I'm the co-founder of VC Talent Lab the author of The Founder's Survival Guide, and I've been a founder coach for
1: 22 years. And uh, why Why do founders need coaching?
0: That's a, uh, that's a great question right off the bat. <laughs> I don't, I, so first thing, I don't think anyone needs coaching. I think people choose to have coaching because they want to ace their game, because they want to be the best they can be. So I don't think anyone needs a coach. I think founders choose to have them. So then why do found, a lot of founders hire coaches? First of all, because starting a business, scaling it and being who your business needs you to be throughout that journey is incredibly stressful, and very isolating. And having someone that you can talk through the challenges that you're facing and bounce ideas around who understands that journey can be incredibly beneficial.
1: What proportion of founders do you think hire a coach in the UK?
0: So we specialize in a very specific subset of founders. So we specialize in venture-backed founders because they're on a a very specific journey. So if you've gone to a VC fund and you've raised 20, 30, 40, 50 million to scale your business, you're about to go on the sharpest growth trajectory you can imagine. And you're going to move from being you know, a wild-eyed warrior entrepreneur into becoming a CEO in record time. The interesting thing is if you asked me that question 4 or 5 years ago I would have said that the majority of venture back founders didn't hire coaches okay we started to see coaching become more and more popular in silicon valley about 10 years ago and then as with so many things the uk is sort of slowly caught up with that journey and you know we increasingly the venture the vc firms that are our referring partners you know, they do a lot of work to support their founders and they're all routinely, not all of them, that's a, that's an exaggeration, but an awful lot of them are recommending coaching for every founder that they invest in. So I think the numbers are going up. I don't know that anyone has specifically researched the number of founders. So how would you determine
1: founders? I, but do you think it's 5, 10, 20, 50, even in the niche that you're in?
0: Can't tell me. I, I speak to interested parties. People call me because they've already decided they want to be coached.
1: Yes. So a large proportion of the people who speak to you say, yes, please coach me.
0: Uh, Well, we don't market. So we only ever speak to co-founders who have been recommended to us, who've been referred to us, who've been introduced. And so by definition, before they pick the phone up, they've already decided they want to opt in. So, which is my favorite version of marketing, by the way.
1: (laughs) Indeed. But does that mean you have no sales pipeline visibility? Like either the phone rings and people want help or the phone one day doesn't ring?
0: To be honest with you, I've been doing this a really long time. You know, so if you'd asked me that question when I was five years in or 10 years in, I still used to feel the fear, but honestly, having been doing it since the late nineties, I now know that, you know, my pipeline will always be full three to six months in advance. And that doesn't change. So, you know, I think we think in slightly different terms. Because with VC Talent Lab, all of our recommendations and referrals come from the VCs that we work with. They don't hire us, the founders hire us because it's really important that the founders opt in. You know, we can't force any founder to be coached. But we're very, very lucky. We have some very strong relationships with five or six different VC and PE firms. And we know how many founders they're going to be investing in over the next 12 months. So we can pretty much predict the number of introductions we're going to get and the number of those that are likely to convert. So no, Pipeline's never a consideration for us. But between you and I, I think the first person I learned coaching from was a guy called Thomas Leonard, who was the sort of founder of the personal coaching movement in the 1990s. And he was really clear on this. He was really clear that it's attraction, not promotion and that if you master your craft, and you add extraordinary value, you don't ever have to worry about pipeline. If you're really good at what you do, and you add extraordinary value, and you are solving a real life problem for people, you don't have to worry about pipeline. So don't worry about pipeline, worry about being really good at what you do, adding real value and solving a real problem.
1: And why did you get into coaching then?
0: My pre coaching background was as an entrepreneur. So I, uh, I was supposed to be going to London School of Economics to read history, and uh, I dropped out to marry a rave DJ when I was 19, <laughs> and <laughs> high point in my parents' life.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: But before that, in my gap year, I'd talked my way into a job with a record label. They'd opened a UK subsidiary. They'd made me director of the UK company before my 19th birthday. So by the time I was 26, I'd founded five separate businesses, and I was brilliant at startup. Absolutely brilliant. I could spot a need, I could spot what needed to happen. And then as soon as I had more staff than I could sit around a dining room table, everything would go wrong. <laughs> and you know, the first time I was like, Well, that's because the people in Italy are idiots, it's the record label people. Oh, it's their fault. And I walked out in high dudgeon. The second time I was like, Well, it's their fault. And then by the about the third time, I was like, Oh, I think it might be me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Then when I was twenty six, I was like, it's definitely me. And so Unsurprisingly, the rave DJ and I got divorced. <laughs> Who knew? And um we're still very good friends. He's a lovely human. And and I was fascinated by this. I was like, you know, I'm I'm not stupid and I can be so successful in zero to one. Why can't I go one to two? What is that? And so I was just fascinated by that. So I went to university, I did a degree in applied psychology, I did a two-year qualification in executive coaching, and it was basically trying to work out why I couldn't do one to two. And I loved it. And I was sitting there when I discovered executive coaching, which is very new then. This is 98. And you didn't have it. You know, you didn't have coaching. You had therapy or get on with it. (laughs) And I was like, this is amazing. This is the application of psychology to the art of success, not the art of getting well, if you're unwell, but to the art of being more successful. And I felt like someone had given me life's missing instruction manual. And I also knew that if I knew some of the things that I'd learned at 21, 22, 23, 24, the businesses that I had founded would have thrived and gone one to two and and continued to be incredibly successful. And I guess like a lot of people involved in this space, you're trying to help people who are suffering the way you used to suffer. And, you know, I come from a long line of entrepreneurial founders who've never been very good at scaling. You know, my dad was the same. My dad took the company from his back room to IPO and then was immediately kicked out because he couldn't do the CEO game. And so I guess I've always had this strong passion. I really love founders. I think they're incredible. And if they know a couple of things, they can choose how they land. And what I mean by that is, do you want to stay? From, you know, to IPO, do you want to build a business and have it be lifestyle? Do you want to build it and sell it? Do you want to build it, hand over, become a chairman, and have someone else do the CEO? There's so many options for a founder, but so many of them. If you look at the numbers, the numbers that I've seen in a book called The Founder's Dilemma is that in at IPO, only one in four businesses will retain their founder as CEO. And I would, I don't know the actual numbers for how many of those people who are no longer enrolled, how many of them have been removed, but I would say it's a lot higher than you'd want it to be.
1: I was talking to a chairman this morning who had just unfortunately had to remove a CEO and it happens all the time.
0: And it's heartbreaking. There's a lot of research as well, by the way, to suggest that maintaining, if you can help a founder grow CEO abilities maintaining them in the business. There's cultural history, there's sort of the vision, the energy. The research suggests that maintaining your founder as CEO has a lot of advantages for performance and culture. If you can get them to perform like a CEO or do minimally viable CEO.
1: Yes, that's a good next question then. What's your definition of minimal viable CEO? And I suppose what you're talking about is you're talking about as the business goes from startup to scale up and scale up to grown up, which are the terms you use in your book. Does it change? Does the minimal viable CEO change as that journey progresses? And if so, what is the minimum they have to be able to do?
0: So let's clarify what we mean by minimally viable first. I'm not suggesting that you should do a bad job as a CEO. I'm not suggesting that you should just put in 10% effort and then let the rest go away. But there's a big debate. Do you play to your strengths as a founder and then get someone else to do all the bits that you don't like? Or do you evolve your leadership style? And I think that's a binary argument and it's too simple. I think it's both. I think that, you know, if you're seven foot seven really and you want to be a great sportsman, you're probably better (laughs) off picking basketball than being a jockey. Yes. And if you're five foot five, you should probably be a jockey, but that doesn't mean that you can't ride a horse and it doesn't mean that you can't shoot a hoop, no matter what height you are. And so. For example, if you have you know the language that I use of these the sort of three different styles of leadership, so you know it starts up the entrepreneurial founder, and then as you start to scale, you know that entrepreneurial founder we call that warrior, you know brave warrior, you know focus on the goal, come what may, fearless, determined, almost myopic, and then, as you get to scale up, that style of leadership can be very damaging because you're at a stage in business which requires you to create Systems and processes and build the engine for growth and drive high performance in your culture and your team. And that brave warrior leadership style can be very damaging at that point. So the style we talk about there is considered architect in traditional leadership talk. That's your operational CEO. And then as you get to the point in your business where it's more mature, where you have a very senior C suite who are all CXs, who are leading their own function, then you need to elevate back up into traditional leadership as we talk about it in the corporate arena. So the transformational CEO, the strategic, the visionary. Now, the thing is, a founder can be all those things, even if they're a raging warrior. They need to be able to, as they scale through those stages, recognize their superpowers and their vulnerabilities. Most of them are going to need a very strong COO you know, or a chief of staff or a CPO who can hold a lot of the operational stuff that they won't enjoy, but they still be able to do minimally viable. So a lot of founders, what they'll do is, I don't want to do the operational stuff. I've hired a COO for that. That's great. You still have to manage your leadership team. You still have to show up for regular leadership team meetings, you still need to consult with your leadership team. You still need to manage your complex stakeholder set. You still need to, you know, follow the processes that your COO is creating for you. So minimally viable to me is recognizing what the business needs from you at different stages and ensuring that those needs are met through the team you have around you and how you operate within that system.
1: Do you see this as different levels of awareness based on whether they're first-time founders or second-time founders or and maybe age and levels of business maturity as well?
0: It's a different job when you're coaching a seasoned entrepreneur who's been through the scale-up journey before, but there aren't that many of them. I mean, just look at the figures we, we talked about before. You know, one in 10 venture-backed companies will get returns, and of those one in 10, one in four will retain their founder CEO at IPO. So the proportion of founders that have gone through that scale-up journey successfully is very, very, very small. So when you work with one of those, they have more awareness of of how the business is going to require them to show up with different energy, different focus, different ways of communicating and leading. First-time founders, it's a tougher journey to get them there, but, you know, we do. <laughs> If they want us to, if they don't want us to, you know, I'm not here to be anyone. I'm not the boss of anyone.
1: I often find that people say they want to, but it's not easy, is it? You know, if there's a thing that you find really easy and you have some vulnerabilities, to be self-aware enough and then to put the work in to change can be really hard. It's like, you know, the world is full of diet books and gyms. And there are unfit people who wish they weren't as heavy as they are. There's no lack of information. There's a lack of effort. And so therefore, there's a lack of desire.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing. So knowledge doesn't transform people. Will, commitment, engagement, accountability, these are the things that transform an individual. Coaching, the art of coaching, great coaches will help a founder not just have the self-awareness, but really... You know, a lot of our job is engaging with founders at a very early stage in the conversation to get a sense of really how much energy they're willing to put into this journey. And our job is really, you know, I always say to people, if you've just raised your first 20 million and you think you're going to be the next Elon Musk and you're all piss and vinegar and success and adrenaline and, you know, the sky's the limit, don't hire us. Wait till you're in pain.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because you're not going to take our advice at all at the moment.
0: Well, first of all, coaching and advice are two separate things. There's a difference between being a mentor and being a coach. So this is a really, really important thing. I don't convince people who don't want to change to change. That's not my job. I coach people who are feeling the pain and help them get out of pain. So I don't try and convince people who aren't, you know, interested into the value of coaching at the point at which it gets really uncomfortable. You know, we're one of the options. <laughs> the other options are alcohol and resigning.
1: <laughs> or at least two of those three. Are you, are you coaching just the CEO in the work that you do? Or are you coaching other people on the executive team as well or the whole team? Or
0: So we have a team of eight associates and we're, we're typically working at one of three levels we won't work within an ecosystem where we're not working with the founder. However, sometimes we just work with the founder or founders. Other times it's founder and leadership team. And then our third stage is founders, leadership team and wider organization. So often we'll work with the company and the founder will say, I want to you know, do X, Y, Z. I want the team to be ABC, but I also want the next level of leadership below us, or I want the culture to look like, or I want us to build leadership capabilities like this. So we're working at those three levels.
1: And it's, all on the human side of the business. So it's in the sort of the behaviors and the relationships.
0: Yeah, it's, it's all leadership behavior, management, communication, cross-cultural communication, culture, accountability. So it's, it's all the people-based side of things, for sure.
1: Is it different when the founder is male or female? Is there a gender difference that you see? Well, you don't see very many because there are only 20% female founders in the world.
0: And also don't forget we are we are working with founders post a large series A or a series B, and there's even fewer of those.
1: And so it's an even smaller proportion.
0: Yeah so I don't think I can answer that question. Don't get me wrong, we work with female founders, but the large proportion of our clients are male, which is a real state of affairs. I just actually want to say one thing. I'm just thinking about at the moment I coach five female founders, and there is no difference in the conversation.: Huh,
1: okay. So what you're saying is, from your perspective, no difference. That doesn't mean that there isn't a difference. Your subset is quite small, but your personal experience is no difference.
0: The people who choose to work with me, they identify more as entrepreneurial warriors than male or female. So I coach Boudicca's as well as, you know, Genghis's. (laughs) (laughs) My girls aren't Genghis Khan. They're just, you know, they're female and male warriors I coach.
1: So does that mean that you never see imposter syndrome as one of the challenges faced by the CEOs that you coach? Or is that something that still shows up in Warriors?
0: I mean, imposter syndrome, you can't be a coach and not have worked with it. But you do see less of it among the entrepreneurial population, the venture-backed entrepreneurial population. Because honestly, if you've got crippling imposter syndrome, the journey to get to a 50 million investment will have killed you. You won't have done it. That's not to say, you know, because we coach in a lot of of senior leadership teams and I didn't always coach venture-backed founders. So I've done a lot of work with imposter syndrome over the last two decades. But I would say you see a lot less of it in venture-backed founders because they need to have bulletproof self-confidence to have gone through the challenges of raising a Series A it's not easy. It is not easy to stand in front of VCs and pitch and sizzle and pitch and sizzle and get turned down again and again and again and keep going while paying salaries on your credit card. I mean, if you've got imposter syndrome, that's going to be really, really hard.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And so how come you ended up in this position where you were venture backed, you know, VC Talent Lab? What was the journey to get here? How did this become your watering hole?
0: It's really interesting. If you look at the trajectory of most executive coaches, what happens is you train, you work for two years, and then you scurry into the corporate as quickly as you can, because that's where the easy opportunities and the big paychecks are. But because of my background as an entrepreneur, that just wasn't the path I ever followed. So most coaches, most of my cohort that trained back in the nineties, if you look at them, they've spent, you know, I'm still good friends with many of the people I trained with, but they have spent 80 to 90% of the last 20 years in corporate environments. I've spent 80 to 90% of my time with founders, with self-employed people. And so about four years ago, my business partner and I, my business partner is, and it's really interesting. I'm a recovered warrior. And he's a recovered monarch. You know, <laughs> and so I help warriors become more architecty and he helps architects become more monarch. So we kind of okay. we midwife different parts of the journey. And he and I were really fascinated by by the venture space. And really worried that the pivotal piece of research, we saw a piece of research by CB Insights, who did a, a decent sized post mortem of the failure, VC backed failures. And they found that of the top 20 reasons for VC backed companies, one in four was a failure of leadership, completely preventable failures of leadership. So leadership team not gelling, relationships between the leadership team and investors not being good. Burnout, not attracting, retaining and and eliciting high performance from talent, loss of focus. And these are things that coaches fix, you know, don't fix, but we work with clients all the time on that. So the fact that, you know, 25% of the reasons for failure are preventable was just horrific to us. So we looked at how much work was being done on leadership development in the VC space and it was negligible. You know, VCs were spending a lot of time and energy on go to market strategy, on ops, on On, you know, systems on products, but they just weren't providing an awful lot of support for leadership. And so it just felt like, you know, an obvious shoe in. So we started going to market with the idea. We built the brand. And over the last two, three years, it's just grown exponentially.
1: Fab. And are you able to look at the businesses that you've worked with and see that you've reduced the failure rate?
0: So if you look, if you want to ask me about the 20 years, yes, because I've got a 20 year horizon. I can point to 10 or 15 businesses personally, where I can guarantee you if you call the founder, they'd be like, nah, I wouldn't be here without it.
1: That's fab. You said earlier that the founder has to be the person that wants the coaching. Has the sell to VC and PE got easier? Often I see the people say things, oh, we really, really are important. We think culture in our portfolio is really important. You know, having the right team is important. Is that statement backed up by any action as they tap onto their spreadsheet and think about how to save money or drive growth and really not get into some of the human side? Has that become an easier sell? Or has that sell become easier as it's become self-evident that companies that you're working with are performing and surviving?
0: So I think we have to be a little, I know this is an unpopular point of view, but I think we have to be a little gentle with VCs and PEs. You know, they've made a commitment to their investors. I get that. I get that, you know, if you are, in at the VC space, if you are one of 10 companies invested in a Series A, how are you going to stand in front of your LPs and say, well, we put a £100,000 worth of coaching in and the LPs say, but you're you only one of 10 investors. Why should you be paying when the other nine VCs are going to benefit from that? So I get the difficulties that VCs have. I know that we all like to, you know, demonize VCs, but the VCs I work with are, are great people who care, genuinely care about their founders and put a huge amount of energy into their platform support. If they weren't, they wouldn't speak to me. So now, does that equate to the VCs putting money behind it? What the VC will want to do is have every bit of their money in equity. And so what they want to do is give the money to the founder and then tell the founder to hire you. And I understand that as well. So if you're asking me, do they put their, their money where their mouth is? Maybe not their money, but they show serious intent in other ways. You know, so the VCs that we work with, we do events with them. We do webinars with them. We create collateral for them. They make introductions to us. They make us really a big part of their ecosystem. And I think that's great and admirable.
1: But that's a that's a two way street. They're using you to help them look more approachable as well. Yes, people are going to them and pitching, but they still need deal origination, don't they?
0: It's a very um, dark way of looking at it. I'm much more optimistic than that. I <laughs> I don't think heads of platforms sit there thinking about nah, if we can prove you've had VC talent lab, we'll make us look better. I don't think they're I don't think they're that nasty. But hey, look, let's be really honest. If there are VCs like that, they wouldn't take a meeting with us, you know. So we tend to work with founder-friendly VCs because they're the only interested people who are interested in having the conversation with us in the first place.
1: Okay, let me switch tack slightly and go back to these three personas that you outline in the book. The warrior, the architect, and the monarch. What's behind that? What's your sort of methodology for saying, here, let me take you through this test or this survey or this assessment or this tool, and you can prove to yourself you're one or the other?
0: So archetypes have been a ubiquitous part of leadership development for the last 40 years. Actually, longer than that. MBTI was based on Jungian archetypes 100 years ago. Any psychometric you look at is based on Jungian archetypes. So the warrior and the monarch are Jungian archetypes. There's, I'm not I'm not making up anything there. The architect is not an archetype. You know, there is no universal archetype. You know, warrior is a warrior, whether you're, you're in a Papua New tribe or, you know, on the field of Flanders, a warrior. And so is a monarch. You know, a monarch is a monarch, whether you're in a Viking tribe, you know, or Monte Carlo. So those are ubiquitous, ever-present. All I've really done is given a name to operational leadership. I've just given it a name. I'm not making anything up. I am standing on the shoulders of giants and just reframing it in language that I know founders understand and can cleave to. And they get that they're warriors. They get they want to be monarchs. They don't want to do the architect thing, but if they've got to do it so they can be a monarch, well, all right then. And they kind of get that scale up's going to require them to be an architect. They get that what they're designing in scale-up says they're designing an engine to scale and that you can't do that as a warrior and you can't do that as a monarch. You've got to kind of engineer it. And so all I've really done is taken traditional Jungian archetypes and then reframed it for founders.
1: I read the book and thought, it just made perfect sense. But you don't have to be, if you're a founder, you might not be a warrior. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Can you be a founder and not be a warrior?
0: Yes, but it's really interesting. You tend to find that their journey into it is slightly different. So at the moment, I'm coaching two awesome founders who are architects, but you've got to look at how they became founders. So the first had a business with her husband, and then when they got the divorce, she bought the going concern from him. And now she's done a spectacular job of growing it. Would she have founded a business on her own in the first place? Who knows? But she didn't have the warrior energy. So it's made the scale-up journey. She's just such a beautiful, beautiful architect. She's wonderful. The second is somebody who had come from being in large corporate and had gone from that to be a GP in a very specific niche fund and then was exited from that and basically borrowed my warrior energy for a year. Then he very quickly went and found another warrior. So what he did is he surrounded himself with warrior energy just to get the thing off the ground. And then he's architected the last six years and it's a brilliant business. So they tend to have a different sort of initial launch than the traditional warrior which most of us is god these people are assholes i'm gonna go do it myself (laughs) which is the typical the typical warrior journey to starting a business in my experience
1: (laughs) and how do you feel about one founder two founders three founders four founders five founders level of success Things they should know before getting into bed with multiple founders.
0: Yeah, again, I I will be really straight. It's it's not a problem we spend a lot of time with because of the point at which we come in. So you've got to think about when does it make sense for a founder to hire a coach? Does it make sense when you're at pre-birth stage? No, because you need every single penny that you've got to build a product or, or a website or do your first sale. So the majority of time when we start working with founders, it's when they've gone through that journey. So we spend quite a lot of time helping founders stay in emulsion with each other because like any relationship, you know, I've been really happily married now for 25 years and, um, you know, we had a big fight last weekend. It's human. You're going to have fallings out. You've got to find a way of getting back together again. I annoy him. He annoys me. That happens with founders. So I don't have a lot of point of view around how to find the ideal founder.
1: Is your husband a warrior, an architect or a monarch?
0: He's a monarch. Yeah, he's so cool.
1: And is it possible, do you think, for two warriors to be married to each other? Probably not.
0: Well, I mean, you could. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I just, I just as you were talking, I was just thinking, occasionally I meet couples and they say, we never argue it just makes me deeply nervous
0: interestingly i do coach a female warrior who's married to a male warrior and they have so much fun because they are both <laughs> they're both so hard-working they travel the world they do amazing amazing things together But I think it's more common to have one person in the partnership who is myopically goal oriented and firing in all cylinders. And the other one is going, Are you sure? Should we slow down? Do you need a holiday? Hang on a second. You know, you haven't seen your son for a week. Do you want to stay at home? (laughs) That's what my husband says to me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My son's 21, by the way. Just in case anyone thinks I'm leaving this poor child on his own at
1: home. (laughs) Oh, very good. What do you think the next? Five years looks like in terms of coaching entrepreneurs. Is technology playing any role that it hasn't in the last five years?
0: So, first of all, I don't think anyone's cracked the nut of technology and coaching. There's some interesting platforms out there who are playing a sort of matching service. I think AI is an interesting add on. I think it's helpful. You know, I was researching something yesterday and I I asked ChatGPT, but I think so much of coaching, as with leadership, is about the exchange of energy. And I don't think you can AI that. (laughs) I might be wrong, but I don't think you can. So I think it's the relational, it's the energetic. I think there's space for technology to do a better job in the coaching ecosystem. I just, I, I haven't cracked it yet. But then I'm not massively tech curious. I'm human curious. So I let other people think about the future of AI and coaching. So I think within the venture space, I think it's really heartening. First of all, COVID had a really interesting impact on coaching In coaching, you tend to find that the people who use it most are the people who are most isolated. So that leadership coaching, senior executive coaching, founder coaching its because those are the most isolating roles. You know, if you're a founder, you can't go to the water cooler and go, oh, God, I'm so stressed with your team because they need you to be the leader. You can't go to your investors and go, ah, because they need you to, you know, So, so it's a very, very isolating role like being a CEO is. I think that COVID really brought isolation to the forefront of our conversations. And it also meant that, you know, this distributed work from home just destabilized a lot of of, of relationships. And so I think, you know, coaches were very, very, and have been very, very busy helping leaders and teams in the aftermath of COVID. I think that, you know, after the kind of crazy valuations of sort of 18 months ago, You now have VCs and founders being very thoughtful as they absolutely should be about their runway, but also wanting to do all that they can to ensure that what they've got works really well. And to the degree to which coaching and leadership development, like a service for your car, engine oil for your car, you know, making it all work a bit more smoothly, we continue to play a role even when people are being very thoughtful about their spend. And then I think the third element I would say is, what happens in the U.S., we tend to be five years behind in the U.K. And, you know, founder coaching is is sort of ubiquitous in Silicon Valley. You know, we now have people asking us to run year-long programs for them, you know, speaking regularly at their founder events. We don't have to knock on VCs' doors. They're open to us and they're welcoming us. So I think one gift, I don't think it's even a gift. I'm not going to take any credit for it. But I've been very, very lucky in my life that I have been I've been at the beginning of three movements. So I was there in 89 when house music happened and I caught that wave and I rode it brilliantly for seven, eight years. And then I was there as the wave of personal coaches started coming along and then I rode that. I see a similar thing happening now with founder coaching where we're not having to explain what it is. We're not having to convince anybody what it is. And the fact that we have 20 years credibility, we've got a team of people who are specialists in coaching founders, because. What works in a corporate setting doesn't work with founders. The kind of coaches who work well in a corporate setting. If you walk up to a founder and you do corporate coaching, which sounds like this. Interesting. How does that make you feel? A founder is going to tell you it makes you feel like punching you on the nose. <laughs> we get founders in a relatively emerging market. We have more credibility than any other company I know. I think that's a really exciting point. Because I think we're at the beginning of that wave where founder coaching in Europe becomes ubiquitous. I hope so Anyway, because If we can save any founder from blowing themselves up the way I did or my dad did, it's a good thing.
1: I take great heart. I mean, people ring me up and they say, I just, I just hate my job. You know, I, I just hate this. Why have I got into this position? And they just don't know how to get out of a hole. And so when you can then speak to them the next time and the next time and the next time, and they, there's just this palpable they're re-energized. They've got a sense of this can all work again. It's brilliant. Can I just
0: add one thing to that? A marriage guidance counselor said to me once, the number one problem marriage guidance counselors have is people come to us two years too late. That's why we try to work with people from the second they get their series B. Because waiting until they're miserable then makes your job very difficult, makes their job very difficult. And it means that they've gone through a couple of years of misery before they hire you you can get there early and preempt it and and help them map the path they're going to take and plan out what's going to be difficult, their life is easier.
1: Yes, I was just thinking about what you said earlier where somebody's like, I haven't yet worked. You know, if they don't show up with some sense of problem brewing, you know, if they have a lack of self-awareness that you can't save them from themselves. So how do people spot a great coach from a charlatan?
0: Honestly, I think it's got to be, well, two things. Number one, get a personal recommendation. Nothing beats that. Number two is look at their experience level and their qualification. One of the worst things about this industry is that it's unregulated. And so somebody can say they're an executive coach. And what they really mean is, I did a workshop at one weekend. And now I know that, you know, it's all about the principles of attraction. If you clear your closet, you'll make way for wonderful new things to come into your life. Okay, you know, you really want somebody who's done a really solid qualification. The easiest way to see that is if they are ICF certified. And the other thing that I would say is watch out for the difference between certification and membership. Anyone could be a member of the ICF or the European Mentoring and Coaching Council. You know, you really want to look at their length of experience, personal recommendations. If they've got references on their website, check them out, you know, contact those people on LinkedIn. So we're we're very visible with our recommendations on our website. You can see pictures of who we coach, their quotes, and you can contact them through LinkedIn. So really make sure you've got a personal recommendation, check out the qualifications and and check out the length of time they've been in work. And then finally, once those things are in place, have a call because the chemistry is also crucially important.
1: I think that the chemistry thing is absolutely key. Absolutely key. And do you find it both ways? Are there some people who like you and you go, actually, I'm not going to enjoy coaching you. So maybe one of your colleagues is a better fit or...
0: Uh, No, honestly, I would be really doing a bad job if I coach everybody I have an initial session with. Because if I know somebody who I know will do a better job than me, it would be absolutely unethical for me to take the work. So if I know that there's somebody in my team, or I don't think that person is a good fit for VC Talent Lab, if I say yes to them, we're going to do a subpar service. And because we're in a relationship-based industry, I can't afford to have vaguely satisfied ex-clients out there. I want delighted clients out there. So 50% of the people that I speak to, I refer on either internally or to you know outside of the business. And also, if I don't think someone's coachable or I don't think, you know, that's part of the art of coaching is to be really challenging with somebody if you don't think that they are really going to be up for the journey. You know, I have those kind of toe-to-toe conversations with potential clients really regularly where I'll say, I've got a concern. It feels like you want to do this. I genuinely don't think that will work. I'm not in the job of convincing you, but if you don't trust me, then don't do this.
1: Okay, very good.
0: And then it's their choice. They can find someone who'll do that for them, you know, or they can trust
1: them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rachel, what what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier other than getting married to DJs?
0: I stopped drinking six years ago and it has been the single best decision of my entire life. No, hang on. I do exaggerate. <laughs> Marrying my husband and having my son, the single biggest, best decision was, but honestly, it's really interesting. Excel did some research recently where they, where they interviewed the most successful founders of the last 25 years. And what they were most surprised about is how many of them said they'd had to give up drinking, had to, to take up exercise. I wish I'd known 20 years ago that giving up alcohol would make negligible downside and such enormous upside to my health, my business. I have consistent energy, best thing ever. So I wish I'd given up drinking when I was 26, not 46.
1: Okay, very good. And other than the founder survival guy, what should people be reading? And this could be books that have changed your life, a novel that you're reading, or something to do with coaching or founders?
0: So for founders, I would recommend that everybody reads a book called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. I genuinely think that you can read any book on leadership, but if you read The Founder Survival Guide on one side, and then The Advantage on the other, because the advantage is about how you build a healthy organization. So I focus on how you lead. And the advantage is how you build healthy teams and healthy organizations. It's simple, it works, whatever the size of organization you're in. And I just think it's brilliant. So I would recommend The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni to anyone building a business. Over and above that, for any leader, either Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, if you want to read the original text, or The Daily Stoic by Ryan Halliday. Yes. I give Marcus Aurelius' meditations to most founders because founders were pretty egotistical lot. And most of them will sit there and go, Yeah, I want to be an emperor. Excellent. You know, Marcus Aurelius was the most powerful man on the planet. And then you give them meditations and it's humility, 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 leadership of service. So, you know, I kind of slide it under the founder's ego just to give them a dose of humility and wisdom. So either Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the founders of Stoic philosophy or the daily Stoic. And then the other one, it was really interesting. I just posted yesterday, I did some research with 24 different, very high profile leaders and founders. And A lot of them mentioned Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. But I'm really sad because nobody mentioned Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I know it's really old. It's really out of fashion. But you know what? Almost everything you need to know about how to live a happy life is in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So it's old. It's 1990s. I'm showing my age, but I think that should be taught at school.
1: (laughs) That's brilliant. Rachel, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Lovely to speak to you. Great to have you on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did.